Elizabeth. Thanks. Our reading is from Revelation chapter 3, uh, verse 14 to 22. <clears throat> to the church in Laodicea, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can be rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right. I came across a thing recently that I didn't know was a thing, and I'm not sure ever should be a thing. Pastors or ministers giving their own churches five-star reviews on Google. <laughs> you having that? Put it this way, would you trust a Chinese takeaway if the only positive review on Google was from their own chef. No danger. So would you trust a pastor's own review of his own church? I also heard of pastors encouraging their own members to leave five-star Google reviews of their own church. Now I get, right, the motivation is probably good, right? Let's put the word out there for people who are new to church so they can find out about us. But it doesn't sit massively easy with me. But it does... Bring the question, if you were given your own church a Google review, how many stars are you giving it? And what would you write? Now, my guess is most people would comment on the public stuff, right? The stuff that you can see either commending it or critting it. So what's the preaching like? What's the music like? What's the coffee like? What's the childcare like? But maybe it should be reviewed what's the prayer life of the members like? Or what's the condition of the marriages like? Or what's their hospitality like? Or what's their care of the poor like? What would you review? And I wonder if you were to review your own church pre-lockdown to where we are now, would your review have changed? So maybe some folk are going, aye, before lockdown, our church was flying. Now, feels like we're flagging a bit. Or another question, whose review would you listen to? Whose review matters, the pastor 
the members, a visiting Christian, a first-time non-Christian, whose review matters? Because the challenge of a Google review is, it's proper public. It's now there for everyone to see forevermore. Now, what we've been seeing this week in Revelation is Jesus' very public review of seven different churches. And they've been preserved for us to be read by everyone forevermore. And if you look at verse 14 of Revelation chapter 3, you see why Jesus is the only review that matters. Look how he describes himself. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. In Revelation so far, chapter 1, verse 5, you've already met Jesus as the faithful witness. So Jesus, in his life, in his teaching, in his miracles, in his dying, in his rising, is the perfect display of God's truthfulness. But as well as revealing God in perfect truthfulness, Jesus also reviews churches in perfect faithfulness. His reviews never biased, never skewed, never ill-informed, never unfair. The other phrase in verse 14 where it says the ruler of God's creation is probably better translated the originator of God's creation. That means everything comes from him. And so because he sees all things, knows all things, knows the end from the beginning as the originator of all creation... He is the only one who can give a faithful and true review. So let's say it does not give a jot what stars on Google say about your church. What matters is what the Son of God says about your church. And what we're going to see this evening is the fatal danger when what we say about our church is vastly different from what Jesus knows about our church. Here's the first thing Jesus gives us. A review that is faithful and true. A review that's faithful and true. Look at verse 15. Christ says, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. Now, if you jumped on a TripAdvisor back in the day for Laodicea, that review of the church would have sounded a lot like a TripAdvisor review of the whole city. So as a city, apparently, never been there, Laodicea was pretty impressive and a massively important place. However, its water was minging. Apparently, it had no natural water source, and so they had to pipe water in from a spring about five miles off, which means by the time it got to them, it was rank. Neither cold nor hot, just stale and lukewarm. Those two nearby cities who had either extreme, so apparently there was a city nearby served by hot water springs that provided hot water. Now, what can you do with hot water? Well, it's useful, particularly for people who are sick. It can heal. There was another city nearby that was served by cold mountain springs that gave them, guess what, cold water. Now, what can you do with cold water? It's useful. Cold water is useful, particularly for people who are shattered. It refreshes. What's lukewarm water good for? Nothing. It's useless. 
Which is why Jesus wishes they were one or the other, caught or cold. The extremes are both good, both useful. The middle's useless. Which is why Jesus says in verse 16, So, because you're lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now as a reviewer, you didn't have to say to Jesus, Get off the fence, tell us how you really think. He is not lukewarm in his reaction to a lukewarm church. You make me want to spew. Here's a question for you, right? When Jesus describes a church or Christians as lukewarm, what's the first thing that comes into your head? I think for most of us, it's probably the church that's dwindling or Christians who are drifting. That'd be fair. We probably think lukewarm Christians are the Christians who are maybe no longer in church. However, that does not fit with what's going on in Laodicea. The problem in Laodicea isn't that people aren't in church. The problem in Laodicea is that they are and Jesus isn't. Verse 20. They're busy on the inside. He's knocking on the outside. See, Jesus' issue calling this church lukewarm isn't so much their inactivity It's their ineffectiveness. The church is lukewarm like Laodicea's water, which means useless, worthless, pointless. Here's what one lad said about it. The church was providing neither refreshment for the spiritually weary, nor healing for the spiritually sick. It was totally ineffective. Now, when you link that with the way Jesus introduced himself... You see he does that very deliberately. The way he introduces himself in verse 14 is linked to his issue with them in 16. How does he introduce himself? Verse 14. He is the faithful and true witness, which means he is white hot in bringing healing to the spiritually sick. And he is ice cold in bringing refreshment to the spiritually weary. What should the church in Laodicea have been doing? They should have been having a similar impact in their city as Jesus had when he was on earth. But their lukewarmness meant that instead of having an impact in their city, they were ineffective in their city. That's why he says, you're lukewarm. I'm going to spit you out. Now the NIV is not great for us in verse 17. See verse 17, it should have the word like for or since at the start of it. Because the reason he's calling on lukewarm in verse 16 is explained is because of what they say about themselves in verse 17. So let me read the flow. Verse 16, so because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. For, here's the reason, you say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, And I do not need a thing. Now we need to get this next bit. This is key. The reason this church is spit worthy. The reason they're useless. The reason they're being an ineffective witness. Is because they think they need nothing. It's their luxury. That has led to their lukewarmness. And verse 17 explains what lukewarmness means. They are good for nothing because they think they need nothing. See, across the seven churches in Revelation, 
prosperity is more dangerous than persecution. When you're getting persecuted, you know you need Jesus. When you're in prosperity, it's tempting to think you don't. And the fact that Jesus is on the outside of this church knocking, trying to get in, is proof that it's possible for us to be so self-dependent as Christians or as a church that we've not even clocked the fact Jesus is scarpered out the door. Let me put it a little bit more positively. The effectiveness of a church's witness to Jesus is tied to their neediness of Jesus. Let me say that again. The effectiveness of a church's witness to Jesus is intimately tied to their need of Jesus. Now, come back where we started, right? Google reviews. How do you think most churches in the UK would give themselves as a review for the last two years? My guess is a lot of churches might have a similar review that would say something like, Do you know what? We felt like we were being fairly effective before COVID. Now it feels a wee bit lukewarm. Think that'd be a fair review? Lockdowns left us lukewarm. But what if lockdown hasn't left us lukewarm, but actually lockdowns merely revealed that we were already look warm. See, I think as we think back, we'd probably got to the point where church was pretty easy, pretty safe, pretty comfortable. Maybe we got to the place where we felt like we knew what we were doing. We got to the point where we could run church without thinking. Maybe use the language of this text, run church without needing. And we'd plunged into the perils of prosperity. We don't need a thing. We got to a place where preparation for Sunday gatherings was weighted more towards all the practical protocols rather than on pleading prayer. Or we got to the point where we were scrambling around on a Sunday morning making sure, does everyone know what they're doing instead of, does everyone know that they're needy? Or we got to the place where our dependence on Sundays was on the giftedness of the preacher or the liveliness of the band or the decentness of the childcare. And we'd forgotten to depend on Christ. It had become about the professionalism and the pragmatics of putting on a product. And we didn't realize that our self-dependence had meant we hadn't noticed that Jesus had walked out the door. Maybe we'd got to a place in church life where we were too easily satisfied to come to church merely to hear about Jesus rather than coming with a desperate neediness and expectancy to meet with Jesus. Sure, we can sing songs about him, but did we ever sing to him? Sure, we can pray prayers in his name, but did you ever actually talk to him? Sure, we can read about Jesus in the scriptures, but did we ever really listen to him. There is a massive difference between coming to church to hear about Jesus and coming to church to meet Jesus. I wonder if we were doing church without actually needing him. 
And I wonder if the evidence of that was it was rare. Or maybe we can't even remember the last time that we met Jesus in church in such a way that we responded like John did in chapter 1 of Revelation, where he said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I wonder if we'd been operating in the tradition of Jesus, but it had been a long time since we trembled in the presence of Jesus. Or maybe we'd created a culture in our church where it was no longer acceptable to admit need. If you ever feel that. Feels like the tagline, we don't need a thing, is something's expected of us at church. We got to the place in our heads where we thought that in order to be an effective witness to the world that Jesus meets people's needs, it's not okay for us to admit we're in need. And in essence, we were starting to proclaim a prosperity gospel. Since I met Jesus, I've become rich, I've acquired wealth, I don't need a thing. And way before lockdown came, we were already wearing masks to church. Hiding our battles with addiction, or hiding the problems in our marriage, or hiding our anger, or hiding the chaos that we slammed shut at home before we scrambled into church. All pretending. We don't need a thing. Or maybe we got to a place in our churches where we didn't want our church to be in need. Need's scary. Maybe we got to the place where we didn't want to be in need, and so we never took a risk to sacrifice. We don't want the balance to be stretched so much, so we're not going to be generous with our money. We don't want to be challenged by a preacher, so let's just get somebody who will tickle our ears. We don't want to lose control of this church, so let's not pass responsibility on to the next generation. We don't want to take any risks, so let's stop being bold in telling people about Jesus. And in playing it safe, in not wanting ever to be in need, we'd lost sight of our desperate need daily of the Savior. And so maybe the reason that lots of people haven't returned to our churches since lockdown is because many of us were lukewarm before lockdown. They weren't coming out of a need of Jesus. And so when their life didn't lack anything when church closed, they haven't returned now that church has opened. Now let's come back to what we were saying. The effectiveness of a church's witness to Jesus is intimately tied to their need of Jesus. It is possible to be so self-dependent as a church that we've not even noticed that Jesus has left. What if that's what lockdown has revealed about the UK church? that our relative luxury has left us repulsively lukewarm. And the reason we've not been a faithful and true witness to the world of their needs being met in Jesus is because we've been living as if we don't have any need of him. Now, if we don't realize this, we are as in as much danger as the church in Laodicea. Their greatest danger, their biggest threat was the gap, the difference between what they said about themselves and what Jesus knew about them. Have a look at this. Look at verse 17, the first half. 
You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. Here's the gap. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Here's how much this church needed Jesus, even though they didn't know it. Those words are not words that the Bible uses to describe a believing new creation bound community. Those words are words that the Bible reserves for an unbelieving hell bound community. See, that's where this church's greatest danger lay. On Google, they thought they got five stars. Jesus says, You get zero. And you know, that should make us tremble. And see, if you've come out of lockdown, maybe you're a pastor and you feel now a sudden vulnerability, a sense of deep neediness within yourself and your church. Maybe you're a member anxious about the state of where your church is going to be in a year, five, ten years' time. You need to see tonight that feeling of neediness is a place of deep healthiness. (laughs) It's where we need to be. Because the urgent thing the Spirit wants to teach us tonight, first off, is to have a clear realization of where we truly are. Because the next thing he wants us to see is a clear sight of the willing heart of Jesus to meet those needs. Here's the second thing. If the first thing he shows us here is a true and faithful review, the second one is he wants us to have a realization that only Jesus can meet our need. So we don't only need his accurate diagnosis, we need him as a prescribed medication. Look at verse 18. He's just said, I might spit you out. And then look at this. 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. How class is this? Your neediness, my neediness, does not bar us from Jesus. If you're here tonight and you're feeling spiritually bankrupt, you need to see here that Jesus offers you riches that outweigh and outlast this world. If you're here tonight and you're feeling the shame of being exposed, you need to see Jesus offering you conscience deep, stain-free covering and a brand new beginning. If you're here feeling like you've been staggering through life vulnerably blind, you need to see Jesus lead you here to the sight that means you see the way to true life. But you can only get this from Jesus. It's interesting, right? Those three images Jesus uses. So riches, clothing, and eye salve. They are three things that Laodicea as a city was world-renowned for. So across the region, Laodicea was known for the treasuries within its banks, the quality of its clothing, and the excellence of its eye care. So when Jesus chooses those three things to draw those images from the city, he's deliberately creating a distinction between him and the city. You can either go to them 
to try and fill your needs with material things that will never satisfy and never work. Or you can come to me. But you can't go both. And so he's saying, your needs will never be met by the city that your church is in. They will only be met by the Christ that your church has put out. Now I think again, when we're thinking about our churches, maybe they are languishing in kind of lukewarmness. And we're sitting there chatting away and praying about it and thinking, what's, what's the thing that would make our church proper kick on? And then it's tempting to go, see if we had a better and more gifted communicator up the front, or see if we had a better and more usable building, or see if we had a bigger and more spendable budget, then we would fly. But if we get those things from the world, what are we communicating to the world? That we need them. And if what they say is that we need them, why would they ever think that we, they need us? And all of a sudden, we've become a lukewarm and ineffective witness because we've been going to the world for what only Christ can give. See, our way back to faithful and true witness to Jesus is to recover our need of Jesus, to crave the counsel, the, the riches, the covering, the sight that only Christ can give. It will be as the world sees our wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked needs being met in Jesus that we show them where their needs can be met. No longer lukewarm, but suddenly we become ice cold spiritual refreshment for the weary and red hot, white hot spiritual healing for the sick. Which is why Jesus sends this message to the self-dependent church. He's about to spit them out, but the reason he takes time patiently to counsel this church is so that they would become a witness to the world. He's looking beyond them. Which is why in his patient kindness, he shows his love in rebuke. Look at verse 19. Verse 19, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here's the third thing. A review that's faithful and true. A realization that our needs can only be met in Jesus. And then a last thing, a rebuke from Jesus about our urgent need for repentance. Now think about that. There's been loads of stuff particularly from pastors over the last three months, calling us to earnestness, rightly. Listen, come on. Don't get comfortable in pajama church where you can sit at whatever time you like, wearing your pants, eating whatever you want, watching something passively on a screen. That's not church. Moan, let's go. Let's get back to earnestness, meeting with God's people. There's been lots of calls to that. In the last couple of weeks, there's been loads of calls to rejoicing, right? Particularly as we're able to sing together. But I have not heard yet a pastor calling their church to repentance. I'm yet to hear anyone say that the right response in returning to church is to return to God in repentance. 
But if lockdowns revealed any of the lukewarmness of Laodicea in us, any of this complacent self-dependence, then we cannot go straight to excited rejoicing. We must start with earnest repenting. Repentance is the realization that the review Jesus gives us is faithful and true. Repentance as a trembling at the truth that our self-dependence has functionally excommunicated Jesus from our church. And repentance as a sprinting to the door to get him back in, not just in the room, but in his right place on the throne. And praying to him, Jesus, forgive us for rating ourselves so wrongly. Jesus, forgive us for judging ourselves by the standards of the world around us. Jesus, forgive us for thinking we don't need you. Jesus, forgive us for equating spiritual health and riches with worldly health and riches. Jesus, forgive us for seeking to meet our spiritual needs with worldly things instead of you. Jesus, forgive us for the proud self-dependence that functionally sent you packing from our church. Jesus, forgive us for when our lust for comfort made us worship safely rather than worship you sacrificially. Jesus, forgive us for when our relative luxury has left us lukewarm. Jesus, forgive us for being a false and unfaithful witness to you in the world. And Jesus, forgive us for not being able to remember the last time that a clear sight of you led to us falling on our faces in front of you. Jesus, forgive us. And if you see in verse 20, he is knocking at the door generally, but he is appealing to his people specifically. See that? I'm standing at the door knocking, and if anyone hears my voice. See, that's a call to you today. That if you're hearing the knock at Jesus, on your heart, if you're feeling the convicting voice of the Spirit about your lukewarmness, if you're coming to that true and faithful realization that maybe we have in our churches been repulsive in our lukewarmness, he's appealing to you to be the anyone to lead the way in repentance. There's an old hymn I've got in the front of my face when I'm prepping sermons. Um, It says, Lord, send a revival. Start the work in me. Remember that old hymn? Oh, Holy Ghost. That's how it goes. Oh, Holy Ghost, revival comes from thee. Send a revival. Start the work in me. This is where repentance starts. And Jesus is knocking, saying, will you be the anyone? Listen, we need to get to excited rejoicing. But the only way there is through earnest repentance. And it's through earnest repentance that we get to the point where we go from Jesus, thank you, Jesus, forgive us, to saying Jesus, thank you. Jesus, thank you that you would even knock at the door again. Jesus, thank you that you didn't spit us out your mouth. Jesus, thank you that you came for the wretched, the pitiful, the poor, the blind, and the naked. Jesus, thank you you have riches for poverty, covering for shameful nakedness, and salve for blind eyes. 
Jesus, thank you that you can transform lukewarm, ineffective churches into true and faithful witnesses. Jesus, thank you that your victory over sin and death is what empowers our victory over lukewarmness. And thank you, Jesus, for the patience that would lovingly rebuke us so that through repentance we're no longer cast from his mouth, but we're eating food with him at his table. We're no longer repulsively useless, but we're reigning with him for eternity. And so the message that comes to us today is if you have ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not just to Laodicea then, but to us now. A true and faithful review from him. A realization we can only get what we need from him. And then led in repentance through his loving rebuke. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you that our neediness does not bar us from you, but that you invite us to come without money and without cost. And we say, nothing in our hands we bring, simply to your cross we cling. In your name, Jesus. Amen.